0: Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Today I'm talking with Mark Koyama. Mark is an Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, and he is an economic historian. So I'm an economic
1: historian, and I'm interested in, in a broader sense in the origins of modern economic growth, but also modern liberal, democratic, political institutions as well. We're going to be talking with Mark about his recent book, How the World Became Rich. How the World Became Rich It's really a survey of the latest economics research on the origins of
0: economic growth and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Like the book, our discussion covers a wide range of topics and a time. We look at the history of economic development and economic growth and talk about why we saw a great deal of economic growth coming out of Western Europe when we did, and why it is and is not a uniquely Western phenomenon. We talk about the role of economic growth in other areas of the world. Asia, India, and China in particular, and the role of legal institutions and legal rules in promoting the development of economic growth, the role of culture and diversity. So we really talk about quite a range of materials, and I'm thrilled to share this discussion with Mark Quayama about how the world became rich. The title of the book, How the World Became Rich, presupposes that the world became rich. So uh, are we rich? I think a lot of people look around the world today and think, yeah, things are kind of terrible. You look around. There, there's a lot of not positive sentiment in the world today. So is the world, in fact, rich? So by
1: historical, historical standards, we certainly are very much definitely rich. So if you think about the average person in, um, in most of human history, so excluding the elites, you're thinking about people... Uh, living on maybe two to three dollars a day so living close to subsistence poverty even in the more developed uh slightly more kind of like the high points of the pre-industrial world if you think about florence in the renaissance or um you know ancient rome or classical greece you're thinking about economies where per capita incomes were in the early years you know, at the very most in florence maybe two thousand dollars two and a half thousand dollars per capita GDP. If you think about a country like the United States it's like 60 or 70 thousand dollars GDP per capita in today's money. So um, that scale is very important and I think non-economists often lose track of it. If you think about the technologies we have access to, think about antibiotics or or, uh, medical technologies or vaccines, these are things that even the richest people in the past would not have been able to afford. So in that sense even people who are um, not affluent or not uh, particularly rich, have goods, they have cell phones, they have all kinds of technologies not available to even the richest people in the past. Um, so they're in that sense, we're also historically rich. We're also rich in a, in, a, in a final sense, which is that even in countries which are not as rich as the United States, people are doing a lot better economically than they were 40 or 50 years ago. So 40 or 50 years ago, the majority of people in the world were actually still poor. So the majority of people were living... Um, in countries where per capita GDPs were one to $2,000 or less per, per year, people in India and China were living close to subsistence poverty. Now, those are middle-income countries. So the picture today isn't one of a rich world surrounded by endemic poverty. It's one of a world which has seen, which has seen rapid growth. And most people live in middle-income countries, or and we experience they're not free from want or poverty but they're historically doing a lot better than, than even in the recent past. And so that's another important dimension of this, this richness.
0: So we can divide, this is very simple way of thinking about this, but we could divide uh, individuals up into rich, middle class, and poor, or the top 10 percentile, bottom 10 percentile, and the middle. And if we look historically, we talk today about the richest people in society and the, all the billionaires, and this is where the populist rhetoric and Most of the popular talk is the ultra rich are trillionaires nowadays, and oh my god, this is whatever. But you're more focused on the middle tranche and the bottom ten percentile, and the really, in many ways, dwindling size of that bomb ten percentile. It's always going to be the same size, but the increasing wealth of that bottom ten percentile. Yeah, so even
1: people who are poor by American standards, uh, historically you know, in the upper middle class globally, if you put them in a global income distribution, and they're, they're rich relative to people historically. And that factor is an important one we shouldn't lo- lose lose sight of. Now, growth, we're framing our book and this question around growth, as opposed to inequality, because we think what matters for, for ordinary people is their own consumption. And then relative to uh, maybe their neighbors or their benchmarks, in some sense, if you're in rural India, and your incomes have doubled or tripled in the past 20 years, it's, that, that's a good thing, independent of whether or not Elon Musk's income has increased a hundredfold in, in the same time.
0: And you and I, we just went out to uh, a lunch, uh, went to a, a local Chinese food place, had a perfectly tasty, very filling, calorie-rich lunch that would have been a high luxury for someone living in the upper-class society of Florence, uh, as you say, back in the Renaissance era. Yeah, having fresh meat would have been a luxury
1: outside the time you're slaughtering your meat. So I think I think it would be um, around harvest time at the end of the summer going into winter. That's when you would actually be able to eat beef. But you'd be, you'd be killing your, a lot of your cattle um, I mean, you'd be salting a, a lot of the meat and preserving it for the winter. So during the winter, basically, all, almost all people would just be eating salted and preserved meat. We wouldn't have fresh meat. Mm-hmm. So fresh meat being available all the, all year round, is really, I think, a product of refrigeration. So it's really, you know, the idea of ordinary Americans being able to eat steak and hamburgers um, is really in the late, mid to late nineteenth century. It's like that's a ordinary
0: thing. So let's turn to your book, How the World Became Rich. Didn't Adam Smith already write this book? So uh, Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, many people are familiar with it. And those who are familiar with the book think of it as the Bible of capitalism that's about the wealth of nations. But really, the, the full title of the book is an inquiry into the origin of the wealth of nations. And he was looking at the world around him in the 1700s saying, where did all the poor people go? why are we all suddenly so rich? So how does your work relate to that of Adam Smith? And didn't he already ask this question? So Adam Smith, definitely asked this question um, and
1: I think Adam Smith's a natural starting point we, we do cite him quite extensively and he's a starting point for all, all of thinking about all these questions of growth and uh, the origins of modern economic growth what I would say though is that when Smith was writing the richest country in the world at the time so he always talks about the Dutch Republic as being richer than Britain and he compares England as being richer than Scotland and then he talks about like you know other parts of the world as being like, very poor France is a lot poorer than England and he documents this talking about the types of grain people are and so on. But he was living in a world before uh, what we call modern economic growth. So the Dutch were richer than the English were richer than the Scots, but the differences were actually quite small. And so now the differences of, potential differences have become much larger because of the technological innovations we've seen since the Industrial Revolution. And Smith is writing on the cusp of this Industrial Revolution. So, you know, in some sense, maybe he anticipates aspects of it, but he also misses aspects of it. So um, there's definitely a lot we can say which builds on but goes beyond uh, what Smith was saying in the Wealth of Nations. So you know, if you go read one book, in some sense, I would read Smith.
0: So you mentioned uh, Smith was writing before the Industrial Revolution. Technological change was playing less of a role. Smith, his answer, famously is that the division of labor is yeah. uh, the the origin of. The Wealth of Nations, specialization, and those uh, sort of concepts. What is your and Jared's answer to the question: so How we're, the world we're, we're,
1: Yeah, so we, we're very much not providing a mono story here. So it's part of what our contribution is actually. But we we want to gather together a lot of different explanations that people who have provided. So Smith, yeah, but for Smith, it's the division of labor, and the division of labor is governed by the extent of the market. And so anything which reduces the cost of trade or makes trade more possible. Expands the size of the market and encourages people to specialize. And so we actually begin like we begin talking about geography, we begin relating that to Smith's insight. So we think about we divide up the potential causes of industrialization and modern growth into like, you know, these these broad categories. One being geography, geographical features, which encourage trade, encourage specialization. And then we also think about um institutions, because that's also again a very Smithian topic. I institutions in our 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 worldview are the incentive structures for people face. So there are rules of a game which encourage people to say invest or to trade or to steal or to plunder, and so that's again something which is very much in Smith. But we we document a much. Um, more recent and growing literature on the importance of institutions for economic growth. Uh, we also talk about cultural factors, so uh, kind of uh, heuristics people rely on when they're making decisions and how that can shape growth and how that can be influenced by institutions or influenced by history. So having surveyed these broad causes, we also talk about demography, we also talk about colonialism. Uh, having surveyed these broad causes, we jump into the story of uh, kind of origins of, of the Industrial Revolution. And there, are, our, our emphasis, and uh, this is, again, building on the work of many other economic historians and scholars, is really innovation. So the decisive features of the Industrial Revolution episode are sustained innovation. So not one invention, but sustained improvements in uh, the, say, the technology for cotton-spinning contextiles. So in, in improvement on improvement on improvement. So when we, we look at various explanations people have given for that, uptick in, in inventiveness, in innovative activity. And uh, we, we document both kind of a view associated with Robert Allen, which is based on induced in, in innovation. So the idea of innovation is a response to prices and to to factor prices. We also document Joel McKeer's view, which is much more based on um, cultural values and like a cultural milieu you're in, which encourages you to kind of push the boat out and try new things and to
0: experiment and to to exchange your ideas and to share your your new ideas. So there are lots of examples that lots of countries point to of one-off innovations. Um, France, there are a number of agricultural products, uh, dairy products that they point to, uh, and textile products that they just have a couple of strong innovations north korea 30 years ago they loved talking about their i forget the name of uh uh, the basically synthetic fabric nylon type product um, that was innovative but these were one-off innovations the the driving thing that uh, you're identifying or uh, thinking about is some set of meta institutions, norms, values that cause the culture, not just to have some one-off innovation, but to have this persistent pathway towards continual. Yeah,
1: this, is, this is very much, uh, yeah, as I said, it's John McKay's idea of a culture of growth, a culture of improving on, on these technologies. And so you need scientists, but scientists on their own might not be able to bring a good to market. So then you need Commercially minded entrepreneurs who could bring the good to market, but they have to understand the science at least well enough to implement these ideas. So you have these famous industrial revolution figures, who you know, Josiah Wedgwood, or others who combine these these characteristics. So, so like Leonardo da Vinci is extremely inventive. He has all these great ideas. He can't implement them. He can't bring them to market.
0: Whereas the inventors of the industrial revolution can. And you use this idea of institutions, which I, I think. You're, you're an economist, I'm a lawyer, uh, we just throw off this word institution seamlessly. We tend to define this idea of an institution though very differently I think than the casual listener to this podcast or just the, the ordinary American or ordinary person would think of an institution. Institutions, this is a Douglas Northian style definition, they're, they're systems of rules. They're the the rules that as a society govern how we conduct ourselves. So you need to have the scientist, you need to have the entrepreneur, you also need to have the legislators, the regulatory environment uh, that design rules that uh, facilitate or don't stifle both the development, the science, and the commercialization of the product. Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. So that's the use of the word institution. It's not the ordinary language word the Federal Reserve is an institution. That's it's like, actually, economists would call it an organization. It's institutions as rules of the game are critical here. And so we to think about these government institutions, governance institutions. So what was it about... Governance systems in Western Europe in the early modern period before the Industrial Revolution, which made them more supportive or less bad for economic development. And in some sense, they, they were bad. We would think that in England in the 17th and 18th century was very uh, mercantilist, as Smith said. There was a lot of rent-seeking, a lot of what we would perceive to be corruption. But the rules were sufficiently stable... And they sufficiently insulated entrepreneurs and people involved in the textile industry or coal mining or the iron and steel industry. They didn't really have to worry about what the government was doing in London. So they they were taxed. Taxes were high, actually. And England was often at war. But they were able to get on with what they were doing. And the Industrial Revolution is really remarkable because it, it does occur largely you know, independently of the government. Some people have tried to connect... The fiscal military state with industrial revolution developments, that there are some examples like the Navy is the closest area of synergy. But in general, like, rem- it's remarkably independent of the state.
0: I'm going to ask a cluster of related questions, and I'll just give this to you as a, a single question. We can think about the industrial Re- revolution, when and why it happened, and we can ask why did it happen when it happened why did it happen in Great Britain, uh, Scotland? That the the Western world, as and when it happened. Why didn't it happen in Germany or China at the time? And looking to today, why isn't it happening in China or India or Africa? Or is it? And we're just not seeing it yet. Take your last question first. I mean, clearly,
1: uh, there's been, there has been very rapid growth in in both China and India the question is is whether that growth is is just what economists would call catch-up growth so uh, the idea being that once for countries far away from the technological frontier it's relatively simple to accelerate towards the frontier through catch-up growth through cumulative imitation but um i think definitely in areas of software ai and uh, social media and so on china actually is at the frontier for sure does that mean it will stay at the frontier economists of kind of uh, my stripe at least tend to be somewhat sceptical that a honey autocratic, top-down society can sustain innovation in the long run. But it has, I think, that in some areas it has reached the frontier. So but put that to aside, yeah, the side, Yeah, have the two questions or the, the kind of cluster of questions you asked. Why the 18th century? And then why Europe? And then within Europe, why kind of England and uh, Britain specifically? So that's like, yeah, that's the abiding puzzle. If you think about um, the year one thousand, then Europe would have been one of the least likely places to have an industrial revolution. So in the year one thousand, China is probably the richest part of the world. Some of them see China is pretty urbanized, has has a lot of um it's it's pretty innovative, things like clocks, compasses, gunpowder. So they're inventing a lot of new technologies. If you were gonna say after China, you would point to the Middle East, you'd say Baghdad or the Abbasid Empire as being likely candidates, Egypt. You would not say Northern Europe. So something happens between, say, 1018 and 1800, a reversal happens, basically. Europe doesn't just catch up with other parts of the world, it eventually overtakes them, and those other parts of the world fall behind. And so looking within the European story, I think you can explain why Europe was at an economic and political nadir in the first millennium, after a fall of the Roman Empire, there was a decline in economic sophistication. The division of labor contracted, trade declined, or barbarian invasions. The problem of violence loomed very, very large. And then you could think about what, what was happening in the Middle Ages is a period where those pro- the problem of violence and in barbarian invasions was brought under control. You saw the rise of an urban economy in the Mediterranean, and you saw kind of foundations for commercial development, the rise of states which were larger, also I mean, that internal violence was was reduced. So you can t- think about why Europe caught up, and you can look at economic shocks. Like I, I think the Black Death played an important role in Europe's economic trajectory in terms of pushing it towards being a high wage, less what's called a low pressure. i using that equilibrium, so it was it, it shifted it towards uh, a more urban, high wage, cheap capital type of economy. But then, what about the rest of the world? Why didn't they also accelerate? So for China. The high point, I think, is really the Song dynasty. Then, then later dynasties seem to be less innovative. And um, I think there are political reasons for that. I think autocratic rule was bad for innovation in Ming and Qing, China. The most famous case, which everyone knows, is the voyages, which were sent out in the 15th century to explore the Indian Ocean. That they were then suppressed, and China closed itself to international trade. And in the Middle East, it's a similar story. You could tell a story about growing forces of conservatism and uh, religious groups becoming more organized and repressing philosophy. There's work by Eric Cheney documenting a decline in scientific publications in the Middle East after around 1100. But you can also point to external invasions, Mongol invasions. Uh, Their their political institutions are quite unstable. So rulers in the Middle East often assassinated, pretty violent. So the institutions and the culture, I think, play a crucial role in explaining this divergence. And the way I see the divergence, it's not something which appears suddenly in 1800. It's a long-running thing where you see decline and stagnation in in the Middle East and China, and you see a gradual rise of Europe from the Middle Ages onwards.
0: So I I wonder, what is the role of government in promoting technological development and growth? I'm thinking uh, couple of examples that have various track records of success and or failure. For instance, the growth and development of the National Science Foundation, which originally as envisioned by Vannevar Bush, um, was really intended to cooperate quite dramatically partner uh, with industry, but uh, in its implementation uh, became much more focused on uh, basic sciences in support of university growth and development instead of industrial growth and development. And there's a a lot of discussion today about government research and development around vaccine preparedness, unsurprisingly, and uh, nuclear fusion and uh, kind of moonshot projects that are difficult for private capital perhaps, to invest in. Do these questions, do these uh, issues fit into this story or where do they?
1: It's uh, a great question. and something you'll know more about than I do. So from an economist perspective, basic science is a function. like, you, From an, a neoclassical economist perspective, you have, the justification for government is, is where you have market failures. And so in basic science, the idea is that they have just huge externalities, positive externalities from um, discoveries and, you know, like knowing calculus. So you don't want to create a pattern for the knowledge of calculus. It's costless to reproduce, we can all learn it, or almost everyone can learn it and benefit from it. So there's definitely a theoretical case for government subsidizing or supporting basic science. How that works out in practice is, which is, I mean, Gus, you'll you'll know more about than I, I do. So then, in practice, there's there's going to be concerns about like who's capturing that money, how is it being used, and are, you know how is it being directed, and is it being best used? The the economic case is, you know, private companies can do R and D and can be rewarded with um, some degree of intellectual property rights protection. Or we get temporary monopolies, and then their profits encourage people to enter and to try and replicate those technologies. So, normally, you would say that the private sector should do fine for most innovations, but basic science, certainly, the government should be providing money for. Now, in the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, in the origin story, well, you certainly don't see a huge amount of support for basic science in England in the 17th and 18th century. But that's not to say that there couldn't have been more. There was some as well. So the famous example of the prizes, the Longitude Prize was a famous example, although... I think recent research shows it's a more complicated story than we sometimes think. But there was some support. So Charles II founded the Royal Society for for the Sciences. And so that Royal Society was a place which had government patronage to support scientists and support scientific journals. So um, because British society became interested in these questions, British state did give some support. But it was trivial by modern standards, like trivial amounts. Now, the big change really begins in the 19th century in places like America and Germany, where you're getting kind of industrial labs emerging. You're getting a lot of the rise of, of new sciences like chemistry, which have huge economic payoffs. And there you get a lot more private sector money going into innovation. So I don't have a strong prior. I'm not like ideologically so libertarian when I would rule out government support for basic science, I think the devil is often in the details. So it depends on how it's being channeled. You don't want it to be captured by certain interest groups. You want a set of institutions which ensure that the money for basic science really is for basic science. And you don't, also don't want intellectual capture. You don't want monopolies or certain firms getting these rents and using them to establish barriers to entry.
0: So this might be another question that you haven't given specific thought to. I'll phrase it in a way and then give you an example, a way that you you might have given more thought to. How is America today doing on technological growth and innovation? And in, in particular, one thing that I think a lot about uh, nowadays is the information age innovations that we've been seeing developments in really high efficiency logistics management systems and uh, just in time supply chains and things like that, which are truly remarkable feats of technology. But I wonder, are they technological innovations or are these technologies that are allowing us to squeeze every ounce of efficiency out of existing technologies?
1: So, um, the way I would answer that is to say there has been um a debate amongst um, economic historians, economists about like the pace of technological change so sometimes when economists write models, we kind of almost assume like the solo model we almost assume that there 's some underlying rate of like total factor productivity growth, and that 's almost like uh, from manna from heaven it 's almost just outside of our models and we kind of assume it's going to be stable. But actually, historically, what we see is there are periods where you see a cluster of important innovations, and you have other periods where there aren't that many important innovations or they're being consolidated. So Robert Gordon wrote this book where he traced the innovations which kind of made the modern world. And so if he said, if you think about, apart from the internet, most of the things we have today, which we rely on, things like cars, dishwashers, airplane travel, air conditioning, they were all invented before 1950. But none of these things, including electricity or even more basic things, none of these things were invented before 1870. So his argument was that 1870 to 1950 was this uniquely technologically fertile period. And that was responsible for a huge transformation in the living standards of ordinary people. But we shouldn't expect a comparable transformation subsequently. And indeed, there hasn't been one subsequently. But other people have criticized this view while accepting that the pace of technological innovations could be uneven. It does seem like there have been a lot of important innovations in the last 13 years in terms of um, computing. And I would say in some areas, the rate of technological change is remarkably fast. So one of the examples is artificial intelligence, particularly applied to creative tasks. So apparently, if you can see this all over the internet now, there are AI programs which will draw, paint pictures for you. There are AI programs which will write essays for you. Uh, based on some inputs. And so the rate of improvement in AI is apparently it's faster than Moore's law. It's improving unbelievably quickly as we speak. So I'm not a techno-pessimist, but I think we can't necessarily predict the exact economic payoff of these particular innovations.
0: Going back to the story of economic growth in Britain and the industrial age, part of the story that is often told is that this is colonial expropriation of natural and human resources. That is, this is about slavery and unbalanced trade with other countries. How do you see that in your work? Yes, yeah, so there's been a
1: long-standing debate in economic history it's, uh, it goes back to Eric Williams, really, who was writing in 1940. It's about the particular role slavery and uh, um, played in, in economic growth in, in Britain and the Industrial Revolution. First thing I would just set aside, like the broad points, but before we go into the specifics, so the broadest point is that the, the largest extent of the British Empire is really in the late 19th century. And so... I'd argue that the British Empire, in some sense, is a product of the Industrial Revolution. The the British Empire, as we think of it today, the British Empire, where it spans a quarter of the globe, whole parts of Africa are painted red on a map, that's a product of the British Empire, more than it is a cause. Similarly, other empires, particularly the Spanish and Portuguese, which are contemporaneous with the British, they're similarly mercantilistic, they're similarly focused on controlling trade routes. They certainly enrich Spanish elites. They certainly result in horrible outcomes for trafficked slaves. They, they certainly, you know, involve extraction of of, of natural resources from the Americas. So they, they have all these things, and they definitely enrich individual Spanish elites. So they definitely transform Europe's political economy, but they don't result in a Spanish or Portuguese industrial revolution. And then,
0: indeed, those economies stagnate during most of this period. Just to spell out the comparison you're making, you're saying if slavery and resource expropriation were at least enough, then there are other cultures, other countries that we would expect to have seen grow in the same way as Britain did, and they didn't. So at least we can say this uh, wasn't the causal factor. The sole causal
1: factor. So the more sophisticated story, like setting aside those those caveats in mind, more sophisticated story will then point to Britain in the 18th century, and it will draw a particular link between the Caribbean slave economy. So the, so the British economy in the 18th century, the, the largest, most, the richest colonies of the, the Caribbean ones, they, they, they produced the most revenue for a British crown. And they're the ones most based around slavery. So this is a little bit before the, the, the plantation slavery in the American South is also part of the story. But before the, you know, the cotton gin is invented, that's not as important. So that is an important part of Britain's economy, the sugar, basically sugar to a lesser degree cotton tobacco they're getting from the caribbean and so that that contributes to a british economy the economic historian's question is is this the decisive contribution And in general, uh, most economists would say it isn't, and they think the Industrial Revolution happens even without this. But there has been some recent papers arguing that there is a link between the sugar economy and and the Industrial Revolution. It's always the the key question there has always been, can you show a link between what's happening in the Midlands, in Manchester, in Newcastle, where entrepreneurs really financing these things from their own savings are building the first factories. They're putting steam power or water power to work, powering kind of, you know, water frames or sending jenny's, these entrepreneurs who have nothing to do with the slave economy responsible for this, James Watt or or Arkwright. And then how do you connect that with what's happening in the the slave economy? And people have tried to. So I don't want to say it's impossible that there's a connection, but I think most economic historians don't see it as the central part of the story. And, And similarly, the British eventually... They stopped the slave trade in 1807, and they, they emancipate the slaves in 1833, and the Industrial Revolution continues apace. Um, similarly, you know, the, the people argue that the British Industrial Revolution is dependent on U.S. cotton, but during the U.S. Civil War, they're able to shift towards Egyptian and Indian cotton, suggesting that, yeah, they, they did import a lot of U.S. cotton, which was produced by slaves, but that
0: wasn't the reason they industrialized. And as someone who has read a little too much Adam Smith, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't just say that the story in Scotland is what Smith would have predicted and what uh, his view of capitalism in many ways was about. And he was strongly anti-slavery and a proponent of giving people the opportunity to invest their capital and be innovative. And as you transition to a capitalist uh, environment, you have the ability for private individuals to develop new technologies and invest invest in steam engines and water wheels and to start figuring out new things to do, and that drives specialization, the division of labor, and is one of the contributors to that economic growth that gave us the industrial revolution.
1: Yeah, certainly. There was a question about whether you focus on the internal developments within these economies or the external ones, and the thing to remember here is that this is a world of very high tra- tra- transport costs, so e- external trade wasn't that big a part of the economy. And so it does matter eventually once Britain starts industrializing, but it can sell cotton textiles to other parts of the world. But in the 18th century, trade is a small part of the economy. So um, there's a classic paper by Patrick O'Brien where he says the contribution of a periphery was peripheral. And
0: I I don't see a strong reason to move away from that perspective myself. A very clever turn of phrase there. My next question, I I think I can just ask with a single word and uh, rising inflection. Africa? going you mean today
1: uh, today uh,
0: what, what's the growth um, trajectory in so I'm, africa i'm certainly
1: not an expert on on, Af- on saharan africa at all but um it seems to me um it's been growing fairly steadily since the 1990s it's countries like rwanda botswana the the issue i think well there, there are two there's several issues one is that um the rise of china Meant that for African countries, they didn't have basically China was so, had such a comparative advantage in cheap cotton textile goods and, and cheap electronics and other kind of forms of manufacturing throughout the 90s and early 2000s. But if you were another developing country and you wanted to, to, to go down that route of kind of like labor intensive, low wage manufacturing, China would outcompete you. And so that that closed off a lot of avenues. Now, China, Chinese economy has grown so much that Chinese wages are no longer that low at all. And so that means a country like Bangladesh is currently growing very rapidly producing t-shirts and cotton textiles at relatively low wages. But African countries have always struggled to get onto that ladder because of partly their transport infrastructures not as good. There a lot some of a lot of that African countries are landlocked. They don't have as easy access to markets as East Asian countries do. But they have grown rapidly and so the question of sustaining that growth I think comes down to institutions. So I don't believe, apart from Botswana and maybe Mauritius and some of the islands, I don't think any African country is out of a middle, is clearly beyond being middle-income. And so there's something called a middle-income country trap, where sometimes countries get stuck. They can can grow out of extreme poverty to being a middle-income country, but there they, they can kind of get stuck. Uh, Mexico is an example. So Mexico has grown relatively well, but it's it hasn't grown as rapidly as like optimists thought post NAFTA.
0: So, uh, during your introduction, you mentioned uh, your work on uh, persecution of religious minorities. Separate topic from your book, but I'm just really interested to know, can you tell us a bit about that work?
1: Yeah. So, uh, this is with Noel Johnson, and it's a long-standing uh, piece of work. So, there, we ask, why was religious freedom a fairly modern phenomenon? So, we distinguish religious freedom from just pure toleration. So, toleration is, you know, I hate you, and I despise your views, but... For now i'll i'll let you exist because of like it's too costly to to, to get rid of you or, or something like this whereas religious freedom is really genuine respect for viewpoint diversity or different people can exist in a society with different um philosophical religious views and that's fine so that's a modern view So adam smith again is actually one of the first people who kind of thinks you can do this like no none of even Locke or earlier kind of liberal thinkers don't really think that it's, it's, it's beneficial or desirable to have a diverse set of opinions in a society. And so we argue it's an institutional transformation. So in particular, we argue that many, many pre-modern societies are organized around what we call identity rules. So these are rules where how you're treated depends on your religious, ethnic or social identity. So like, it's like a caste system or nobles have different laws applied to them versus merchants or peasants. Uh, Jews and Christians get different laws. Muslims get different laws to Jews and Christians. And so that's, those types of societies, they just dominate. That, that's, that's how society is organized. This is, you'll be familiar with, uh, there's a 19th century British lawyer, uh, Henry Marnie, uh, who, who makes this distinction between status to contract. Um, so it's that basically distinction. And so modern modern countries are based around general rules, uh, where, you know, there's a presumption of equal treatment, everyone faces the same rules, and that allows people to kind of uh, give some the maximum freedom. But if you're a society based on identity rules, religious freedom is not compatible with that, basically. Some toleration might be, but not full religious freedom. So to get full religious freedom, you need to transition towards general rules. But general rules, are, in some sense, they're expensive and they're difficult to to establish. And so that, that's why it's, a, it's like a self-reinforcing equilibrium to stay with identity rules. So we argue that um, it's that transformation which occurs you know, alongside these economic transformations I've been talking about today that made it possible for societies to become, to have religious freedom. And also religious freedom is like the, the foundation of like freedom of conscience, and.
0: so I, I wonder. Um, th- this brings to mind another Smithian understanding, or I, I guess a Scottish Enlightenment understanding uh, that was important to Smith and his theory of development, the stadial. Theory: The yeah. idea that over time, uh, society evolved from a hunter-gatherer society to a shepherding society to an agricultural society to a commercial society. And he was writing when we were in that era of commerce. So first, I am curious because I, I don't honestly know, am I right that the current understanding of the stadial theory is it was kind of a parochial sort of way of thinking? I think the thing
1: is, is that it gets taken up by Marx. And so you know, Marx thinks there's a trend, you know there's feudalism, slavery, even feudalism, the capitalism, and socialism. And so at least in the Marxist version of it, the problem is that he's claiming it's a deterministic scientific theory, but it's nothing of the sort. In some sense, it's merely descriptive. Yeah, it's merely descriptive, and it's it's and and it's almost like. Prophetic because so there's and the key other issues are how do you get from one stage to another? And so the idea of stages has gone out of fashion. The last economic historian who kind of uses that terminology is Walt Rostow, who wrote the Anti-Communist Manifesto in 1960, and he talks about these stages of growth. And I think one reason why people are critical of it is that you can skip, it seems like you can sometimes skip steps. Right, so very poor society could could go, you know, to like relatively quickly from like maybe hunter gatherers almost to like skip over some of the steps towards being before growing. And then maybe that would be some cost to doing that. But yeah, that aspect of Smith's theory, I don't think it's we think it's wrong, but it's a descriptive story.
0: Well, it uh, uh, cues up what will be my last question. So as, as a historian, you look backwards and try and learn lessons from the past and understand the past. But I'm going to ask you to look forwards and ask, have we reached peak wealth, peak growth? Will we know how will we know what are the things that we should be looking for for the end of yeah. this, this stage of uh, growth?
1: So in general, econ- economists, or economists don't think that's something you go to reach. For. Just like we don't think you'll reach peak oil, we don't think you'll reach peak growth so the economy can grow effectively forever, partly because it's not material, right? So at some point, like, you know, yeah, we'll be sated with stuff to some degree, but we can always buy experiences and artistic or creative products so we don't see these trade-offs that non-economists see between, say, environmental protection and economic growth. We think as you become richer, you're going to have more technologies to protect the environment better, and you're going to have more desire, right? You're going to appreciate a pretty landscape, perhaps more than you would if you were you know, a subsistence farmer and you're just looking to get your next meal. So, yeah, it certainly have not reached peak growth potentially. That said, we also know from history there have been plenty of periods of stagnation. So it's definitely possible to stagnate, And to revert. So the Roman Empire did fall and the period after the Roman Empire was an economically more basic and simple world. Old fashioned historians used to call it a dark age and modern historians think that's not correct, but it's basically economically it's true. It's not the total dark age, but it was definitely less prosperous. So it's definitely possible you can destroy the economy. You can shut down the, the, the types of innovation. You can, I mean, rent seeking and other interest groups could really slow things down. I mean, I think you see a lot of these things in a lot of European economies where growth is building below trend and there's been this divergence opening up between the US and many European countries in the last 10, 20 years. So, um, yeah, so growth can slow down and, and it's not automatic, but if it slows down, it's probably due to policy and other mistakes, not because we've run out of things
0: to invent. My thanks to Mark Koyama for this really fascinating discussion. It covers so much material. The history of economic growth is a fascinating and massive topic. And he, along with his co-author, Jared Rubin, have done such a great job in this book of summarizing really generations of scholarship into a single book that I personally learned a great deal from. And I really encourage listeners to take a look at. You will learn a great deal and you'll have a lot more questions uh, coming out of the book. And I think that's really the sign of a uh, great contribution, something that both helps you understand the world better, but gives you more questions about it moving forward. Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC.